From Dartmouth College, I'm Lee Coffin, Dean of Admissions and Financial Aid. Welcome to The Search. I don't know my major, but I do know I want to learn more about human beings, including myself. That's the first sentence in the application to Dartmouth College from Heath Monsma. He's a senior at Pioneer High School in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And that sentence, which began his introduction of himself to the college during early decision, kind of set in motion a narrative that introduced a storyteller to Dartmouth. His US history teacher said, he's really interested in examining the lives of other people. And that makes sense. He's editor in chief of his school newspaper. He's the president of the debate team. So he's quick on his feet. And then his alumni interviewer said, Heath is a storyteller. He's passionate about talking with people and telling their stories. And I had a little light bulb moment where I thought Heath needs to come on the podcast and interview me. So Heath, hello, welcome to The Search. Hi, thank you for having me. You're I'm really excited welcome. to be here. Um, we're ex I'm excited to have you here as my guest host this week. And um, you wrote your supplemental essay to Dartmouth about podcasts. So um, could you read to us the 200 words you wrote? Um, you were answering a question about uh, what drives you to create and what do you hope to make or what have you already made? And your answer was about podcasting. So share with us uh, what you wrote. Okay, absolutely. So I wrote that I am podcast obsessed and rapidly consume sports podcasts like Sports with Katie Nolan, true crime series like Missing in Alaska and interview style programs like the Joe Rogan Experience and Dartmouth's own The Search. Podcasts have given me so much joy. I tried twice without success before junior year to create my own. Those failed attempts taught me that making an entertaining podcast is hard. Audio editing is tricky, microphones are temperamental, and underpreparing can lead to 30 boring minutes of rambling. So I tabled the podcast idea until one day last fall. After school, I stopped to say hi to Ms. Roldan, my history teacher. We started talking about her childhood, and as Ms. Roldan told me about growing up poor in a wealthy town, I lost track of time. Later, as I raced to hockey practice, I realized that I had a new podcast idea. I'd interview teachers about their teenage years and how that impacted their teaching style. I enlisted my friend James, who's also a podcast enthusiast, and together we created TBD, teaching-based discussion. We lined up teachers to interview, starting with Ms. Roldan. Something magical happened in those conversations, and it was compelling to hear about teachers at my age. One teacher was open about his battle with depression, another talked about the impact of her parents' divorce. A few weeks into recording, we hit a roadblock, COVID-19, and had to go on hiatus, but by late summer, we began recording remotely. Creating TBD helped me gain technical and interviewing skills, but more importantly, taught me the value of connecting with my teachers. This is one reason Dartmouth's small classes and access to my professors is so appealing. The experience also ignited my interest in podcast hosting. I'd love to try recording at Dartmouth's broadcast studios. And so, Heath. In the spirit of that essay and the conversations you have with your teachers at Pioneer High, 
I'd like to have a conversation that you lead with me. So one of the tricks of being a Dean of Admission is the title sounds so big and scary. And um, I often feel like that scene in The Wizard of Oz at the end when Toto runs up and pulls the curtain and Dorothy says, well, you're just a man when she sees the wizard. Um, and I think this conversation is a way this, to say to students and their parents, you know, the people who work in admissions are just like you and me. And I think like your teachers, you said to me the other day, they, they stopped being two-dimensional figures in front of a classroom and they became people. So I, I think that's the opportunity today. So Heath, the mic is yours. Fantastic. Well, so I wanted to start at a part that we've all gone through before you reach that deed of admission status. And I want to talk about before even your college application process, what you were like in early childhood, what growing up in your family was like, what your parents did, um, what your town was like. Sure. So the, the origin story. <laughs> mm -hmm, the origin story. Uh, the exactly. origin story. So, I, so I'm the oldest of five kids and I grew up in Shelton, Connecticut, which is um, a little town sort of halfway between Bridgeport and New Haven, but in Metro New York City, I would say is kind of the bigger kind of footprint. You know, it was a town where, you know, people didn't go off to private colleges, certainly. If you went to college, you usually went to the state university. And I, as I wandered through childhood and into high school, you know, I was, I was that nerdy smart kid. I, um, you know, I was, I liked athletics, but I wasn't particularly athletic. I, I was a reader. I was the editor of the student newspaper. So we have that in common. Mm -hmm. um, I was in the drama club. You know, I, I worked at McDonald's. Uh, and when, after I got my driver's license, I'd go after school and do the afternoon shift or sometimes on Fridays, I do the evening shift because that was my way of making some money, saving for college, but also learning about like how to work, how to be part of a team. You know, that moment when, a, you know, the football game would let out and the lobby would fill up and I'd be like, oh boy, I got to cook all these hamburgers. <laughs> mm -hmm. But, you know, that was, so when I was um, growing up, I knew I was college bound. I didn't really know how to get there. Um, I was at a big public school. There wasn't um, a lot of one-on-one -on -one guidance um, around how to do it. And because my mom and dad hadn't gone to college, it was a mystery um, to me, and this was pre-internet, so the mystery was even more complicated because I couldn't log on and discover things, so I sure. had to kind of make my way forward, but I, I, you know, college was the moment in my life that changed the arc of it, and, you know, I say that a lot to when I meet students who are also first-gen, that, you know, when you apply to and get into college, and then, like me, get financial aid to go along with it. It is a moment in your family history that sets you on a really different path. I'm curious about how aware you were of who you were at that point in time, because a lot of the time colleges put on um, teenagers to tell them who they are, what they're passionate about. Um, yeah. And I'm curious about how big of a grasp you had on those types of big questions. If you had said to me, you know, the, the, teenage high school senior version of me, I would have said, I'm, I'm going to be a journalist. And, you know, in the yearbook, uh, the, the prophecy was I was going to be the anchor of the CBS evening news. <laughs> um, it didn't happen. But, you know, interestingly, this podcast kind of taps into that ancient 
part of me, which um, I think what we both have in common is I think of myself as a storyteller. Right. Um, you know, not formally in journalism, but, you know, I tell the story of the college where I work and then I invite students to tell their stories. And in that reading of the stories, put together a community that is a story with many parts. But journalism was where I was thinking. I also had a really strong interest in politics. Okay. Uh, and so I think in my head, I was thinking I would be a political reporter. And um, I was, you know, probably atypical of my peer group where, you know, on election night, I would watch the TV. I would like pour over the results the next day in the newspaper and look at precinct, um, sort of the data of an election, like which candidate got how many votes, how were the polls right or wrong? And I still do that. I mean, I, I, I mean living in New Hampshire gives me a, a really wonderful place to, to, particularly during the New Hampshire primary, to mm-hmm. probably go have a ringside seat. But, but those two things were what were really on my mind, you know, politics and, and journalism, and then always writing. I mean, you, you know, using words to express myself. With that potential lack of college guidance from your public school, how did you find out what liberal arts schools were interesting? Yeah, it was serendipity. And um, the, you know, college admissions circa 1980, you know, you took the SAT and almost, or the PSAT and then the SAT and your mailbox started to explode with brochures. I think Mm -hmm. that still happens, but I think it's more email than brochures. But I actually read all the brochures. So I would bring them in and I would sit at the dining room table and I would make piles of them. My mother thought I should be a librarian because I was really good at sorting things and categorizing them. But I was like reading through them and kind of looking for clues about what made sense. And did I see myself? And some of them were places I'd never heard of, but I liked the story they were telling about themselves. But that's how I discovered Syracuse, which was one of the journalism schools I applied to. And, um, and I just sort of followed my instincts. And um, I didn't know if that was the right thing to be doing, but I didn't really know. So I um, relied on the, the brochures and then I would write back and say, please send me more information. And then I would get catalogs and I would read those and I would reread them and I would get course catalogs and I'd spend time like looking through like the political science department and the English department and seeing like, are these courses that sounded like ones I'd like to take? And um, I made the lists and, right. and then, you know, and I applied, you know, I applied to five. I mean, this, these were the days when we didn't apply to more than a few. So I mm-hmm. applied to two liberal arts colleges, two journalism schools and university of Connecticut. And that was it. Sure. And, um, but it was, I think looking back, I mean, the world today is so like the information universe of today is so accessible in the way it wasn't then mm-hmm. that, um, you know, it sounds quaint as I tell you, like I got brochures in the mailbox and I read them and, you know, and my neighbors, I had a, my fifth grade teacher lived nearby and um, she used to come up to me like in the supermarket and say, I made another list for you. And I would take Mrs. Morgan's list home and I would like, you know, do some research where I could, but there were no guidebooks there. I mean, the, the, the world of admissions, the, a search from then was really different. I mean, there, you know, there were no rankings, there were no guidebooks, there was no internet, there was no social media. Right. You either had a family that knew how to tell you where to go, 
um, a school that told you where to go or, you know, you trusted what the mailman brought every day. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds insane and hilarious to me that you would receive those brochures and then write back to the colleges, like <laughs> mail letters back to yeah. the colleges. Because yeah. um, I can't imagine that there are many kids doing that in today's environment. Yeah. Um, and they would write back. They would say, right. Dear Lee, thank you for your interest. Here's yeah. the information you requested. And the other thing too is the applicant pools weren't as big. Sure. So, you know, people who did my job then were counselors and were doing much more one-on-one -on -one work. But, you know, what's interesting, um, when I think about the job I've had for the last 31 years, I never took a college tour. Um, you know, when the college admission people would come to, if they came to my high school, I never went to see them. I didn't know that that was something I was supposed to do. So it's sort mm -hmm. of ironic that I've had this job in admissions where I'm doing all this outreach and visiting schools and having conversations with, with you know, whether they're school counselors or parents or kids, I didn't do any of that um, right. until I got in. And then, you know, in April of my senior year, my mom and dad and I went and, and visited the places that accepted me, but that was, that was it. Well, I think in a funny way, that's kind of what seniors today are dealing with yeah. and that we can't really visit campuses. And while there are these great virtual resources to pick up on schools and um, sit through information sessions, it's not quite the same as going to the one at your school with a physical admissions counselor and presentation. I don't yeah, I hadn't thought of that. You're right. It's, 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 it's like a throwback moment. <laughs> in a way, sure. Yeah. Um, you ended up at Trinity College, right? A yep. liberal arts school, much like... Yep. Dartmouth, maybe a little bit smaller. A little smaller. Um, a little smaller. And was it then in college that you discovered your interest in the college admissions process? Or were you, how long did you believe that you were still going to be a journalist? Well, it, that shifted pretty quickly. Um, you know, once I actually got to college, my, my horizon just broadened. You know, mm -hmm. I started meeting people who were saying, oh, I'm going to do this. And, and I've got this summer plan. And I started to dream in different ways. I, I still love journalism, um, but I, I ultimately became a history major, um, which I never thought about when I was right. in high school. But um, I took a course and then I took another course and then I took another course and I realized this storytelling of the history of the world really appealed to me. And so then I had this other kind of existential question, like, well, what does the history major turn into? Sure. And, you know, I had my dad um, who worked at a car dealership saying, what the hell are you going to do with a history degree? And I said, I don't know. <laughs> Become a historian? <laughs> Become a historian. Well, that's yeah. what I think a lot of people assumed. And so for a while, I thought about law school. Mm -hmm. that, that, that felt like the natural extension of, a, of an undergrad degree in history. And I had done an internship in the Connecticut State Senate. And, you know, politics was still bubbling there. And... I got to my senior spring in college and there was a job posting at Trinity for, it was a one-year position in the alumni office, working with young alumni and undergraduates on what they were calling a class identity initiative. And I thought, that sounds interesting. And I had been applying for jobs as a teacher and I had looked at some publishing jobs in New York and, um, had applied to law school and gotten in, but wasn't sure that's what I wanted to do. And, you know, 
sometimes opportunity lands on your doorstep in mm -hmm. ways that you weren't expecting it to. And so applied for the job, got it. Um, it was supposed to be a one-year gig. I stayed for four. Okay. Um, and um, during those four years, one of my colleagues in the admission office, I'd been working on alumni admissions and the interviewers, and Jane said, you really need to, you should be an admission officer. Like that, that you have the perfect mix of skills to, to do that. So I went to grad school um, uh, at Harvard and did my master's in administration planning. And when I graduated, I took a job in admissions at Connecticut College and didn't look back. Like that was the literally the... 31 years ago, it was the spring of 1990. I got my first college admissions job and I immediately knew this is what I was supposed to do. Great. Well, so what in your personal values kind of resounded with you during that process? What, what was the set of skills um, that was mentioned that you have that really suited well to an admissions office? Um, I, so for me, it was the perfect combination of all the things I was thinking about in separate sectors. So it was, you know, the, the part of me that wanted to be a journalist or was thinking about publishing, like there was a capacity to tell a story, to work on publications like the ones I got in the mailbox and read. There was, you know, the comedian drama club president in me, like the idea of standing on a stage and entertaining people as I introduced the college to them. The part of me that wanted to be a teacher got to work with high school juniors and seniors and not be in the school with them, but be adjacent to it and to feel like, okay, I can help guide them in a way that my guidance counselor couldn't. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe that last piece is what kept me going the most, where I realized that the work I was doing at Con for... 11 years and then at Tufts and then at Dartmouth um, gave me this opportunity to change lives. And that sounds really, I paused before I said that because that sounds so corny, but, you know, I think, you know, at the end of the day, as I watch a class come together every spring, I'm struck by, you know, this, the, I keep using the word serendipity, but the serendipity of these people, you coming into contact with other people, from around the world and how that, that chemistry kind of creates a campus and then the people in that campus see their lives moving in new ways. So I loved that. And I also, um, when I was in grad school, studying kind of academic administration and management, I realized that admissions was one of those roles in a college environment where what happened in that office really mattered. Mm -hmm. you know, um, People cared about who was getting in and what the college profile looked like. And, you know, the media wasn't as attuned to college admissions as it is now, but there were still stories about college admissions. And, you know, the trustees I noticed were paying close attention to it. And the faculty had lots of opinions about it. I thought this is one of those jobs where you're in a space and ultimately as the Dean in a seat where, um, it matters, um, right. like the work we're doing. And, and that's what's propelled me all these years. Um, but, you know, all the way back at the beginning, I, I liked the way the job changed from season to season. You know, there was 
um, a travel component where I got to go and meet people where they lived. There was this reading component, which drew off of my skill as a history major, where I would have to read a lot of books really quickly and digest them. Some dense texts. Yeah. And then there was this committee moment where you're in a room with each other debating the merits of each student and shaping a community. And then you pop out of that and you've got, you know, in a non-COVID year, a campus full of accepted students and their parents. And you've got to, again, tell the story, meet them, help them think about their options. And then it kind of repeats itself. And I liked that cyclical nature. And I would see friends of mine who had jobs that seemed to be constant over the Mm -hmm. 12 months. And I thought, yeah, my job's not constant. It's, it always twists and there's variety to it. And so it sounds to me like a lot of what drew you to the job is connecting with these kids and being able to guide them on an individual level. Uh, Did it ever cross your mind to then kind of inhabit more of the guidance counselor role or, um, or, or have you made an effort rather as an admissions officer to speak to the students in high schools um, as opposed to just being more of the stereotype of a gatekeeper? Um, yeah, I'm really so that's to... a good question. So I, I, never, I did work at a high school for a couple of years um, and then came back to the college realm. I, I, that just felt more like my organic space. Um, but I've stayed in college admissions because I've felt like that was the space where I had a direct ability to make an action. And also, you know, because financial aid was such an important part of my life, um, you know, the other piece of my work that's really motivated me for the 30 years I've been doing this is just ch- being a champion of access via financial aid, like, like owning the way it put my life in a different path and to help generate those resources and and make sure kids are able to get the kind of scholarship they need to make college happen. So, um, but I think as an admission officer, I mean, the gatekeeper tag is true. I mean, you know, we are the ones who have to decide who gets in or not. But our, you know, when you talk to admission officers, we will say we're admission counselors. Got it. So for most of the year, when we're not reading files, we are helping you, um, like literally you, Heath, um, think about your options. And you know, you you mentioned my podcast in your in your supplement. You know, the podcast was a form of counseling. It was a way in the pandemic to offer advice and guidance through this medium because it was the only one that was available to me um, when the world turned upside down. Um, Well, I think one thing that I've noticed uh, you advocating for specifically in some of the blog posts and across your podcast episodes I've listened to is a real transparency uh, in the admissions process. Sounds like it's really important to you. And I personally feel like we may have a long way to go in that regard in terms of the fact that um, everyone, I feel like thinks that the high ranking schools are uh, a crapshoot for lack of a better term. Um, What what does a world to you in which there's transparent admissions look like? And do you think that we can achieve that anytime? Yeah, the journalist journalist just showed up and asked a really good question. Um, uh, So I have been, that's very observant of you. I am, 
for for my career committed to being transparent and i and i say that kind of with a with a comma to the degree that i can be um because you know when you're working in admission there's there are um confidentiality issues that you need to uphold and as you read a file you know what i see in a file might not be um, evident to other people, but I think the, you know, the the challenge of being an admission officer at a place like Dartmouth, where you have significant volume that outpaces the size of the class. You know, so just I mean, look at your class; we had over twenty eight thousand people applied for eleven hundred and fifty seats. So the crapshoot kind of vibe comes from this idea that you know you apply and it the application disappears and then the decision comes back, you know, a few weeks later and you're like, well, how did this happen? And, you know, there's, there's just so much transparency you could bring to the way all of those files were read and assessed and ultimately a decision was rendered. But I think the transparency I try and embody is to, you know, make it less mysterious. And I like to make myself as present as I can be in schools, to the media. And I think the more I can speak plainly about the work I do and have people say, oh, that makes sense. And to take some of the conspiracy away from the work, it's, it's not random. I mean, that's, that's been a theme in a lot of the episodes where, you know, my, my, colleagues and guests have said, you know, there's, there's, this is an intentional process. It's sure. subjective, um, particularly when you're in a, you know, a very selective admission space. I mean, you have a lot of high quality people to um, consider and everyone can't be invited into the class. And that, that's just the truth. I mean, I, so I, I try not to apologize for that because it's just the reality of putting yourself into an applicant pool like the one where I've worked. But I, I think doing what we can as admission officers and personally as a dean um, to um, explain things, to underscore that there is a humanity to what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And you know, throughout this podcast, you know, both seasons, I've, the word reassuring has been my guiding um, kind of marker, like how do I reassure people sure. that they have the agency to move forward? Well, um, I think that what really stuck out to me in that answer was the distinction between the words randomness, like that a kind of a crapshoot infers and that it's subjective. It's a subjective process. And those yeah. are two very different um, concepts. But as it is a subjective process, you as a very empathetic person, you just said you wanted to see the humanity in people um, and hear their stories. How do you reconcile the huge number of kids that um, don't get in at the end of the day? Do you just get, I, I, feel, like, I feel like we have a lot in common and um, just get too attached to yeah. each individual application. Yeah, yeah. it's awful. Um, yeah. It's awful, Heath. And I, um, you know, this year more than any other, I mean, because the volume, we, were, we had a 33% increase, which was sort of a pandemic fueled frenzy of like, let's apply and see what happens, we're worried. And 
I got to a point in early February where I was reading files and everybody was wonderful. And, you know, in a, in a true confessional moment with you, I called a friend of mine who was a retired dean and I said, I need you to walk me through a moment. I'm a bit immobilized by the, the experience I'm having where I'm, I'm having a hard time saying no. Right. And she said, then focus on saying yes. Which of course that was the answer, but it was like when she said it, I, you know, on my, on my phone, I keep, um, now I keep a a daily journal. It's called 2021 day at a time. And that's the, the title of the note. And I, I wrote a note to myself about focus on yes. Like my title is Dean of Admission. Mm-hmm. Um, Not I'm, Dean of Rejection. Exactly. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm an admission officer. So read a file and find, do what you can to find a, a path toward yes for every student I met. And knowing that a different part of the process choices needed to be made that limited my ability to say yes. But focusing on yes was the way I kept my moral compass. You know, as I signed your letter and the other 1,748 letters this year. That green pen. With that green pen. um, I, each time I scribbled my name, I thought, okay, this is the exclamation point. I'm focusing on yes. And I was aware of the significant cue of no's or maybe's because there are some people on the wait list and that's a maybe, but the no's to your question, it is the most poignant part of being an admission officer. Um, It is the most complicated emotional part of -hmm. the job I do. There are limits to how much I can say yes. And that's where I go to the, you know, I I say, okay, for all the idealism I bring to my work, um, there's also a practical dimension to it too. Like I, you know, I work at a college with 1,150 spaces in the incoming class. And the way I've kind of thought about it is it's an additive process. Like one by one, I say, okay, Heath took a seat. Susan took a seat, Jeremy took a seat, and ultimately the seats have someone in them and we're done. Mm -hmm. And it's not that Michael, the next student in the line, wasn't deserving. It's just, we feel- There's only so many seats. There's only so many seats. And that's how, that's how I, I, that's how I make peace with it as a Mm -hmm. dean of admission and, I mean, as you hear me say that, does that make sense? Yes, it does. And it it seems representative, not to zoom out too far, but it seems representative of life in that if you're trying to inflict positive change on the lives of these students, that there's very few professions in which that is the um, only part of the metaphorical iceberg to speak that on the other side, there's going to be some negatives too of um, people who didn't get in. So that does, that does make a lot of sense when you explain it that way. Just in that same vein of the application of kind of, there's a data side of an application, which is the grades and the transcripts and the tests 
And then there's the human side, which is the essays and the recommendations. And that I think seems to be the side that you identify with more. Um, do you think that that might expand in the future with test op- the advent of test optional? Um, I, I think the narrative part of an application is shockingly overlooked by most, by most applicants that, mm-hmm. you know, the data is the data. It's fundamental. It, it certifies your ability to do the work um, at the college in question. Um, and to some degree, it sorts, it sorts the pool into high, the super high achievers and, the, and, and to a degree less so. But, you know, in where I work, we're talking about outstanding versus excellent. It's not like, you know, these are, these are very fine distinctions. But the numbers all by themselves, um, I can look at your transcript, like literally Heath Monsma's transcript and see a lot of A's. But those A's don't tell me about your curiosity. They don't tell me that you're quick on your feet. They don't tell me that you lean into storytelling and that you're a really good listener um, because your questions are born out of listening. And like, those are very important qualities just to give you a compliment. Um, Thank you, I appreciate that, it. Yeah, that, you know, animate the person that you are. And it's not shocking to me that you do newspaper and, and debate and, you know, lots of other things too. But those two in particular really resonate with the person who's been having this conversation with me. And so if I just stopped with your grade point average, um, that's impressive. But holistically, you know, the, the hockey playing, word loving, kid from Michigan that you are uh, emerges from all these other parts of your file and um, that has to count and when I when I talk to the faculty at Dartmouth and this was true at Tufts as well and say what do you really value in the students you teach they almost always say curiosity first Um, and someone at Dartmouth said to me "I, I have a lot you know if curiosity is not present in my classroom, it's a much less fun place to be. Mm-hmm. So how, where do you find that? Like, you know, how, it, does your GPA tell me curiosity? Does your, your SAT score say creative? No, um, it's reading the essays and your recommendations and your interview and listening to the file and saying, I see this person and I can imagine him since we're talking about you, uh, in a classroom on the campus where I work, mixing it up with peers and saying to a professor, so let's go back to the metaphor you just used. You said, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And would it be true if we said, blah, blah, blah. And because that's what you've been doing with me. And, you know, these are examples of the way you would behave in the classroom. And like, does that feel valuable to the way a college admission officer meets you as an applicant um, beyond the data that kind of certified, yep, he's qualified and, and he's done well and his teachers like him. Um, but that's true for a lot of people. Right. 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 Um, well, so 
Um, just a point of clarification though, as Dean of Admission, how many applications are you reading and have you read every person that gets in them as yeah, part of your- I have. Yeah. Wow. I read that's, your file. It's a lot of reading. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I so the way the system I've used, so there's, there's like two roles during this work. So there's the role of admission officer mm-hmm. where, you know, and I step into that role every year and I say, okay, my job is not to be Dean, but to read the file and to be one of 20 people on the admission committee working my way through a docket. So I read, as a reader, I read 800 this year, which is a lot more than I normally do as Dean, but it was a big, it was a big year. Right. Uh, and then when I shift to the Dean part of the job, I am the final reader on all of the files that have been recommended as admits by the admission committee. Wow. You know, during April, um, as the enrollments come, I mean, I get up every morning and the first thing I do is open my MacBook and sit on the sofa and run my query to see who enrolled yesterday and kind of click through one by one to see, you know, who joined the class since the last time I looked. And that's fun to see, you know, um, each of you make a decision that says, this is where I see myself. You, and then magically, you, some people enroll right away. I mean, you know, we released at seven and by like 7.05, we had the first person join the class. So that's also kind of like, you know, magic to me. Like, I'm like, wow. Like that. <laughs> yeah, that's super exciting. I know for mine, I took about 20 minutes to make sure I checked all the right boxes, even though all I had to do, I think was type my name and press submit, but I wanted to make sure I wasn't missing anything. So. Yeah. Describe that moment for us. Sure. Okay. Well, um, I was sitting in this exact chair, which um, audio listeners can't see, but um, my mother insisted on being right over my left shoulder. Uh, I remember (laughs) it like it was yesterday. I was wearing this same sweatshirt and um, I pressed the link. And before I even got to read a word, I heard a screech, a piercing (laughs) screech in my my left ear. Uh, And I just saw the word congratulations and stood up and hugged my mom and there was a lot of emotion. I was, I, honestly, I was more shell-shocked than emotional at the time. My mom was way more emotional than I was because um, I had to run out the door and be at hockey practice in five minutes. <laughs> but um, yeah, I I, looked, I checked it right at, um, I think four o'clock was the early decision deadline. I was there at 401. Yeah. Um, and my hearing took about 48 hours to recover. And From your mother shrieking yes. in your ear. Yeah. No, but those are fun moments. And that's the part of the work that it's invisible. That's why I asked for you to share because I know there's an emotional response. I don't see it. You know, those little vignettes around the world. Sometimes people take a picture. Um, One of your classmates in, I think it was in Rwanda, took like someone filmed him opening that same moment you just described and filmed him opening it. And you see his face just light up. Like he didn't scream, but he went from nervous to just beaming. And, and, and then he forwarded that to us. He said, this is what you just did. And I said, Oh, that was exciting. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. What are you specifically anticipating from the class of 2025? What do you think that we can bring to Dartmouth? So I think, you know, your class as the first post-pandemic class, you know, I, um, I think the world we're all about to 
reemerge into has shifted in some way. Mm -hmm. I don't think we know yet how. Um, so I think, you know, you are the pioneers of this post-pandemic college experience, certainly. Um, so that's intriguing to me. Like, how do you all come back out of hibernation? Re-engage with society. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like, you know, you've all been isolated for a really long time and Zoom is great. It's gotten us through it. But um, I, I think, so that's part of it is just this big social experiment of mm -hmm. reunion with humans is going to be a really important thing. I was struck as a reader by how often your peers around the world were looking out of your bedroom windows during quarantine and dreaming about how you might use your intellect to advance the conversation in whatever sphere you hoped to do that. And that is inspiring to see people thinking about global health, social justice, climate change, sustainability, democracy, um, globalism, and then, you know, all these things kept coming up over and over and over and over again. And so there's this idealism there that I, I've seen in the past, but it felt more acute sure. with, your, with your cohort. And that's what I'm looking forward to. I'm, I'm, um, and I, I would say I, I miss people. <laughs> Me too. You know, I, um, I draw energy from people. Um, I miss my mother. You have yours looking over your shoulder. I haven't seen mine in a year and a half. And so, like, I, you know, so all of, all of these emotions are kind of bubbling around all of us as we, um, you know, get vaccinated and we can rejo rejoin a community beyond an electronic one. And so I, I, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to seeing people on my campus again. Mm -hmm. You know, the beautiful place is still there. Yeah. But it feels empty. Right. Right. I'm, I'm excited to be one of those people. Very I'm, excited. I'm excited to have you there. Well, Heath, this has been such a wonderful conversation. And I, um, I kind of thought it would be uh, as I was imagining what this would be like, but you exceeded my expectations of what this interview might be like. So thanks for, thanks for joining me on the search. Thanks for representing your peers um, in bringing me forward as a, as a guy, <laughs> not just a green signature on your letter. And um, when we're both in Hanover, I um, look forward to saying hello and shaking your hand. I look forward to that as well. Thank you for having me. Thank you. So that conversation with Heath underscores why I've been an admission officer for all these years. Without sounding patronizing, like I couldn't have been more proud of this 18-year-old kid in Michigan who had the presence to interview me, um, uh, you know, this Ivy Dean who signed a letter to him. And anyway, there we were. So, I, and I hope as you listened that Heath gave you some insights like he gives his classmates at Pioneer High where he said, I'd like to make my teachers 
three-dimensional people. And I think he did that with me. So I'm really touched by the conversation we just had. And I said to him before we started, I said, you know, the best interviews are ones where you stop thinking question answer and you just have a conversation. And I feel like he did that. So that was really a, a great way to near the end of this series. And our next episode is the season finale as well as the series finale. And in it, I've asked my friend and colleague, Charlotte Albright to come out from behind the Zoom square where she's been my producer for every single minute of our series. Uh, She's a journalist herself and she and I are gonna have a conversation to conclude the series about what we both learned over the course of these two wonderful seasons. And I'm looking forward to having Charlotte resurrect her public radio, TV, journalistic skill set, and um, bring us to a conclusion. So until then, I'm Lee Coffin from Dartmouth College. Thanks for joining us. Mm-hmm.